So as you've known, if you've been coming the past few weeks, we've been uh, going through a sermon series through the letters of Peter. We're taking a little pause from that as we begin a new series for the Christmas season on the Psalms. And the idea behind that is, is that we know that we see Christ in the Old Testament. It reflects who he is. It predicted his coming, what he would do, how he would save his people. And so our hope then is to go through the next few weeks here, looking at several Psalms and consider our Christ who came and was made flesh and lived amongst us and died on the cross so that we might be redeemed. And I am thankful that um, both Chad Burrow and Robert Knuth will be helping me with this um, series. Chad will be bringing a sermon this morning from Psalm 80, and uh, we're definitely looking forward to that. And I am thankful because Chad is in seminary, and I know he's got projects to work on for that, but he was willing to take a sermon and preach. And, and I get that. It kind of freed me up because I am working on my doctorate of ministry, and it was supposed to allow me time to work on my writing project, which unfortunately didn't get done. Um, there was a little football game last night I had to watch. <laughs> and I said, I said, you know what, I'm not going to stay up for this whole thing. And I did. <laughs> but I am thankful for, uh, for, for Chad and the word he brings. So we're definitely looking for it. So brother, show us Jesus. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I have a little bit of procrastination to confess this morning. I was late in getting my sermon title uh, to Pastor Jeremy, and so it doesn't appear in the uh, bulletin this morning. The title was, Tis the Season to Lament. And after last night's football game, perhaps it's better to be lamenting in Iowa than Ann Arbor this morning, um, at least if you watch the game. But as we look to Psalm 80 this morning, we have a text of lament before us. Um, As we go into this psalm, it's helpful to remember that the world we live in is fallen. It is sinful. We don't need much reminder. We've watched the headlines, I'm sure, in the past couple of weeks. Tragedy in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Children slaughtered and murdered in a senseless act of violence. We saw what happened not too far from us at Oxford High School, about an hour's drive from here. There's no doubt this morning that sin infests our world and that our world has fallen. What are we to do? Sin creates suffering. It creates pain, anguish, heartache, and even despair. C.S. Lewis described pain in his book, The Problem of Pain, which I recommend to any of you. He said that God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world is one of the uses of pain. In Psalm 80 this morning, we see that pain and suffering are used to rouse a deaf nation, the nation of Israel. And perhaps this morning, it can be used to rouse us as well. The psalmist shows us this morning what sin brings, suffering and pain. And the psalmist shows us If you stick with me this morning, how we can lament and cry out to God. He gives us a model for prayer and lamentation. So with that in mind, please turn with me to Psalm 80. 
This is a psalm to the choir master according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead or led Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. You took, it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all, the, all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. Advent. This is the second Sunday in Advent. We as Presbyterians and Reformed folks often have a difficult history with the church calendar and the celebration of Advent. There are those this morning that celebrate the full church calendar and have no issue with it. They see it as a model of how to organize life and their spiritual commitments. For others this morning, Christmas and Easter are about the extent of it. And for those of us that are closer to our Puritan forebearers, there's no Christmas and Easter even. Every day is Easter, after all, in that context. So wherever we are this morning with the celebration of Advent, we certainly can learn something from those who do observe the celebration. Advent is oftentimes a focus merely on the preparation for Christmas, the child who is going to come in the manger to save his people. But Advent should also be a time of repentance and looking forward to the coming of Christ at the end of the age, his second Advent. And this is sometimes lost, particularly in our culture today. We prepare for Christmas, but not for the return of our glorious Savior. We live in a time between the two Advents. 
And in this time, we experience suffering, we experience pain that is oftentimes a direct result of sin. As we await the coming victory of our Christ, the victory that he has already won on the cross through his life, through his death, through his burial, resurrection, and ascension, that victory is won. But we are awaiting that full consummation. Theologians call this time that we live in a time of eschatological tension. That's a fancy way of saying the kingdom of God is here. It is among us, as Jesus himself said. But it is not fully realized in our life and experience. There's a tension between what God has already done and where it's going. Psalm 80 teaches us in this moment of tension, in this moment of suffering, how to lament before our God. Again, you may not be suffering at the moment. We may not, as individuals, be in a season of lament. But there will be those times in our lives, if we have not experienced those, that we need to know to the one to whom we can cry. John Calvin described the Psalms in general as a kind of mirror to the soul, saying, there is not an emotion of which anyone could be conscious that is not here represented as a mirror. In this mirror to the soul, we see anguish this morning, and we see desperation for a people. We can learn three things, at least this morning from our text, at least three things I'll focus on. One, if we lament and when we lament to God, we must recognize, first of all, who it is we are lamenting to. Secondly, we must remember God's past blessing and how we got to the current situation. And finally, we have to wait for God's provision. In this season of Advent, it is a time of waiting. It is a time of waiting on our Christ to come again. So, as we look and read in Psalm 80, in verse 1, to whom is it addressed? We read the psalmist cry, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Throughout the Bible, God is frequently pictured as a shepherd. We can flip back a few pages to Psalm 23. Many of us know, The Lord is our shepherd, I shall not want, and so on. The Lord as shepherd is a title that we see throughout the Bible given to God. But in our text this morning, we don't have a noun. We have a participle. So it's not just that God is our shepherd. We have a verbal aspect to that, that God is the one who shepherds. So the prayer this morning from Psalm 80 is a prayer to the one who shepherds Israel. The shepherd is the one who watches after the flock, who cares for and nourishes the flock. The shepherd is the one with a rod and staff to drive off the wolves. The good shepherd this morning is the one to whom the psalmist turns. Using the imperative, the psalmist in essence is saying, Listen to me, you who guards, protects, and guides Israel. We read then in verse 7 and 14 that God is addressed as the God of hosts. And then in verses 4 and 19... Further, Lord God of hosts. 
with the capital L-O-R-D in our text. The God of hosts is sometimes rendered in the, from the Hebrew as the Lord Sabaoth or Savaot, The Lord of the heavenly armies. The one who commands the host of heaven. This is the God to whom the psalmist is praying this morning. And when we add that all caps Lord in front of the Lord of hosts, we have an appeal to the covenant God. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh, the divine name of God given to Moses. So the appeal is to the shepherd of Israel this morning, the covenant God of Israel who controls and commands the armies of heaven itself. This is not an impotent God, but a God through his mighty hand can deliver his people. The confidence of the psalmist comes through this morning. O shepherd of Israel, O Lord of hosts. So, why did things turn out so badly? How did we arrive at this current situation in Israel? Well, it's one thing for our sins to bring us into a place of despair and lamentation. But as Charles Spurgeon said, the great Baptist preacher, that God should be angry with us when sinning seems natural enough. But that he should be angry even with our prayers is a bitter grief. In verse 4, we read, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? What brought this situation? For those of you who were here maybe in October, I preached from the first chapter of Hosea. In the first chapter of Hosea, we had the prophecy against the nation of Israel for the sin of idolatry. The sin of the people was about to bring their destruction, according to the prophecy, at the hands of the Assyrians. If we look at the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint, to our heading at the beginning is added a little phrase. In our Bibles it says, To the choir master according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. The Greek text adds the phrase, Concerning the Assyrians. While it is difficult to date the psalm exactly, it does fit that historical moment. That the judgment promised in Hosea 1 had come, And by Psalm 80, the people were experiencing the full scattering judgment as they're being exiled by the Assyrians. Lament would have been all that could have been offered at this moment of desperation. Israel was reaping the wages of their sin, and the only hope Israel had was for God to act, for God to do something. But where was God's mercy? We see in verse 5 that, Rather than the sweet water that Moses had found or the bread from heaven, the manna, the nation was given salt-filled tears as bread. And in verse 5 it says they were given this in full measure. Israel was being forced to drink a portion of the cup of God's wrath. They were not relying on another to drink it for them. How awful. It must have been to experience this kind of judgment from their covenant God. Look with me now at the description of Israel in verse 8. You who brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. The vine is 
figuratively referring to the nation of Israel. This vine that was brought out clearly refers to the Exodus when God with a mighty arm brought Israel out from the enslavement and hardship of bondage in uh, Egypt. God had driven out the other nations before them. In verse 9, you cleared the ground for it. You took, it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. God had brought Israel into the land flowing with milk and honey. He had driven out his and their enemies, and their empire had expanded from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean. Their prosperity was potentially limitless with God as their aid. God had blessed them and prospered them. So why is it in verse 12 the tone changes? Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. This is a horrible description. God is the protector of Israel, the shepherd of Israel. Why has he allowed this to happen? The psalmist is looking to God saying, we are your people. Why? Israel was plundered by its neighbors and the description of a boar destroying a vineyard is horrific. This was God's nation. We read that in verse 15, the stock that your right hand planted, Israel, the son whom you made strong for yourself. Why this change? If nothing else, this cry of how long, O Lord, why are we in this situation, O Lord, at least points us to our need this morning. It points to Israel's need. How great the nation's need was for grace and mercy. It's a psalm of faith. It acknowledges that they were helpless before their God and that only He could rescue them. Unless God were to act as He had in the past, their situation was hopeless. Something radical and new had to happen and something that only God Himself could do. What provision did Israel need and what provision this morning do we need? There are really three things. The first is that in our darkest moments, when all seems lost, we need God to restore us. We find in three verses, verses 7, 14, and 19, the psalmist asks in the imperative for God to restore us. First, we have to note that in Hebrew, the word restore here in this imperative form is the same as repentance or to turn, that literally the psalmist is asking for God to turn us. Because only God can do it. We cannot change our circumstances. We cannot restore ourselves. Israel could not restore themselves. They had to rely on the sovereign mercy of God who alone could change their hearts and change their circumstances. Repentance itself was a gift of God. Consider Lamentations 5.21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. It is God who restores. Or consider speaking of Christ in Acts 5.31. God exalted him at his right hand as Lord and Savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. 
Your repentance and faith this morning are all a sovereign gift of God. It is God who turns us, that takes us as the prodigal sons and daughters to himself to receive mercy and grace. It is all loving and sovereign grace this morning. It is Israel's need and it is our greatest need. In our times of sorrow and lamentation, we need God to act to restore us. Secondly, what we need in waiting for God's provision is that His face must shine upon us. This is a common expression in the Old Testament. We read in verse 3, Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 7 again, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. In verse 19, again, a repetition of the imperative for God's face to shine. There's no doubt in my mind this morning that any Israelite that heard this would be thinking immediately of the great Aaronic blessing from Numbers chapter 6, 26, and 27. The Aaronic blessing that you all hear at the conclusion of most services here at Christ Church. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. This is what we need This is what Israel need. God's face to shine. God's face to shine and deliver us, to deliver them, that God would look down upon us with favor. We see in verse 14, the psalmist again makes it more personal. He says to God, look down from heaven and see. God, see us. Have regard for your vine, your people Israel. This is a cry of desperation. God, we are helpless and hopeless without you. We need you to see us. We need your blessing. We need your deliverance. We need you to turn us to yourself. We need your restoration. Because anything less than restoration that comes from you is failing. To see God's face is to be blessed, delivered, saved. The good news for us this morning, between two advents, is that God's face has shone on us in the countenance of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, in verse 17, we read that God would appoint and call the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. God's provision. In other words, for Israel to be turned, for God's face to shine, and mercy to flow, God's man would have to act. There's no question that an Israelite would have seen this as a reference to the coming Messiah, the son of David who would deliver Israel from all of his, all of Israel's enemies. But you see, this prophetic word looks forward to Christ, the true Messiah, not some political leader that many were looking for in Israel, but to one who would save the people from their deep need. It refers to the coming of the second person of the triune God, Yahweh in the flesh, the covenant God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, as a baby in a manger. Jesus would constantly point back to the Old Testament to show himself, to show who he was, to show his office 
as Savior and Redeemer. We can see the Lord is my shepherd and Christ is the shepherd of Israel. Christ referred to himself as the good shepherd in John chapter 10. If we read at verse 11 of John 10, we see this. Jesus speaking, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus, the great shepherd of Israel, is the great shepherd of the church. It is Jesus who laid down his life for the sheep, who commands the armies of the heavenly host. Again, following through with this title of the God of heaven and earth, the God of the heavenly host, Lord Sabaoth. We see that reference numerous times in the New Testament, but perhaps one of my favorites is in Matthew 26, verses 52 and 53. Jesus is there preventing his disciples from acting on his behalf for taking matters into their own hands to defend him against the Romans that are coming to arrest him. And Jesus said this to his disciples, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. You think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send more than twelve legions of angels. Jesus is declaring himself to be the commander of God's army this morning in that passage. Who else could command the heavenly armies save God himself, the Lord of hosts? In the second verse of Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, we have a reference here that I think is fitting. Luther writes in the second verse, Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. I get the sense that Luther had read Psalm 80 at this point. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. It is Christ alone who can win the battle against sin, who can enter into our lives with the light of the gospel. It is Christ alone who from eternity to eternity, age to age, is the same. The Lord of hosts is Christ Jesus and no one else. The one to whom we pray this morning, he is the one who came to fill our darkened worlds, our our sin-filled world this morning with the light of the gospel. That's good news Another hymn that we sing at Christmas states, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. The Lord of hosts took on human flesh to redeem us and restore us to God. Again, if we doubt this truth, consider Jesus' own words from John 14, verses 8 through 10. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. Jesus said to him, 
Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. We have a God who took on flesh this morning, who experienced the full range of humanity accepting sin. That baby in the manger was truly God and truly man. That baby would would grow into adulthood and experience the full range of human sorrows and grief. As Isaiah 53, 3 said of Christ, He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. This man of sorrow suffered and was afflicted for you, for me. By his stripes we are healed. This grieving Savior who was beaten, spat upon, crucified, died, and was buried to experience the full wrath of God for you and for me can sympathize with our weakness. He came because we could not save ourselves. He knows everything about your experience this morning. He knows your sorrow and your prayer of lament to the Lord God of hosts, Jesus Christ, is heard. If you pray in Christ this morning, in faith, believing and trusting in Christ alone and His promises in the gospel, Christ will hear your prayer. It is only through trusting in Christ by faith that it is possible. It is only through the atoning life, death, resurrection, and ascension that we can be made right and restored. That we can have a peace that even the world cannot understand. Our ascended Lord at this very moment is at the right hand of the Father. And what do the scriptures tell us He's doing? He's interceding for you and me. Jesus is praying for us at this very moment at the right hand of the Father. So if you want to exchange your bread of tears this morning for good food, pray to Christ, lament before Him, cry to Him. If you want God's face to shine on you, look outside of yourselves to Christ alone. When I look at my own heart, I see darkness. When I look to Christ, I see light. I see hope. I see salvation. Look outside of yourselves. The gospel is outside of us and it comes to the inside to change us. Look to Christ this morning. The one to whom the psalmist looked forward in the first advent was Christ. The one in this in-between time that we look back to and hope for the future in is Christ. When every tear will be wiped from our eyes and suffering shall be no more. That is the hope of the Christian. That there's a purpose in this suffering. That God, we may not know the purpose of the suffering in this life, but that God is using it for His glory and His purpose should be enough for us. And that it will someday all be made right. 
We know by looking at Hebrews 12 that sometimes God uses suffering to mold us and shape us. We also have the promises from Romans that all things work for good. For those of us who are in Christ that are called according to His purpose, God will redeem that suffering. Outside of Christ, there's no hope this morning. But in Christ, there is an unwavering hope that is a guarantee, and it is a greater guarantee than anything I can offer you this morning. Because it is based upon the very word of God. He will come again, and he will consummate his kingdom. And that suffering and pain will be no more. This present life will soon be over. And we must prepare for that second coming. There's a helpful story here, at least helpful for me, and many of you may know this story. It's the story of a 19th century Presbyterian layman, businessman from Chicago by the name of Horatio G. Spafford. In 1873, Spafford had planned a trip to Europe for his family, his wife, and four daughters. They were to go on holiday for rest, but also to help the evangelist Dwight Moody and his team in their ministry in Europe. Due to a last-minute hang-up in Chicago over a business issue, Horatio stayed in Chicago and sent his family on ahead. The family boarded a vessel, a ship, that was eventually struck by another ship, and the ship with uh, Spafford's family sank in reportedly 12 minutes. When the survivors arrived in Cardiff, Wales, Horatio's wife sent back only this message, saved alone. Horatio Spafford's four precious daughters had perished. The story goes like this, that as Spafford was traveling to meet his wife by ship, at the place where his daughters had drowned, he penned these words, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Many of you know the hymn that that comes from. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Verse 2. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ had regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Spafford is lamenting in the style of Psalm 80 here. I cannot even begin to imagine the anguish of soul that he experienced. But notice how after he laments, he turns to Christ, his only hope, because Horatio Spafford, like all of us, was a sinner. Turning in repentance and faith, he says in stanza three, My sin, O the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And finally, in stanza four, he turns to look at the coming Messiah, 
And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. May it ever be with us this morning that we turn and trust in Christ alone in those moments when life turns darkest. We have a Savior that has been there before us. May we ever lament as the psalmist, trusting in the shepherd of Israel, who is the Lord of hosts. So let all who suffer, all who grieve, and all who long for his return this morning cling to that hope, that one sure hope in life and death, Jesus Christ. And until that blessed day, that day when faith shall be turned to sight, let us declare Maranatha, which means simply, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.